The Center for Teaching and Learning is showcasing faculty innovations in and out of the classroom, and we're trying to create a space where faculty members can share ideas and learn from each other's experiences. This is one of a series of informal conversations where we ask the faculty member to describe and demonstrate their innovative practices. Today, we're speaking with Colleen Kirk, Associate Professor in Management and Marketing Studies in the School of Management. Colleen started at New York Tech in fall 2016. Before joining New York Tech, she was an Assistant Professor of Marketing at Mount St. Mary College in Newburgh. She moved to New York to New York Tech, really, to join an AACSB accredited school that was more research-oriented. Colleen's taught most of the marketing courses we offer here. Most often, she teaches uh, in the MBA program, marketing research, consumer behavior, and new product marketing. She has a professional background in marketing in the technology industry. Colleen loves involving students in her research, and she does so as much as possible. She studies consumer behavior and focuses especially on how consumers develop psychological ownership of products and its implications. Welcome, Colleen. Thanks, Fran. So glad to be here. Thank you so much. Quite an honor to be here, and I appreciate the, uh, the opportunity. <laughs> Which courses are your favorite ones to teach? What's your absolute favorite course to teach? Well, my uh, I have... Really, I, I enjoy teaching um, really almost every course. Okay, my students might might know that, um, but uh, but marketing research is probably my very favorite, and I'll tell you why. So a number of years ago, a colleague at another institution told me not to teach marketing research before I got tenure because the students find the course so difficult, and. Um, and and he's a superb teacher. He's quite remarkable and has been helped me a lot. But at the same time, he told me that he found it uh, to be his most rewarding course to teach because students tell him it has the greatest impact on their ability to find a job after they graduate. And so this has been my experience also. Uh, students find it really demanding. It's a hard course. And um uh, but many students have come back to me after the class is over to tell me that they got their job or their internship because of this class. Uh, in the course, the students choose their own project topic, and we work on it all semester, and they apply the most current, you know, qualitative and quantitative techniques uh, and software to their research problems. So they end up with some really substantial skills that they can go then, and a project, a solid project that they can talk about with prospective employers. And uh, I think that's why they uh, they come back to me and say those kind of things. And that's why it's rewarding to me. Um, I can't Look hear at you. That. Now I'm not muted. Ah. I was muted. Um, <laughs> if you think back on your own time as a student, is there a teacher that you had who really changed your approach to teaching? Or is there a student you've had? Has changed your approach? Oh, definitely. Oh, my students always change my approaches to my teaching. So, and I'm always grateful to them for that. Um, so, my colleagues also, you know, have been influential in helping me through the years, um, uh, including the, you know, the fantastic teachers we have here at, at New York Tech. Um, 
you know, and before I really answer this, I'm going to give you a specific example, okay? But before I answer this, I also want to say how much I have appreciated the Center for Teaching and Learning. We didn't have one at my prior institution, and it is a remarkable asset at our college. And uh, so I just want to, you know, give you a shout out for that. I can be happy to talk about, you know, the many things, okay? But uh, but I think I'll focus the and I'm happy to talk about those at another time, um, the many ways that the Center for Teaching and Learning helps me. Um, but, uh, but I'll give you a, a specific example of a student who uh, was instrumental in changing my approach to teaching, because that's what you really asked for. So um, it was actually at a, at a prior institution, okay? It was my very first semester as a full-time faculty member uh, at my prior institution, which was a, a liberal arts college. And I was teaching the freshman introduction to marketing class. And um, I had 40 students in the class, and there was a small group of students in the class that was intent on disrupting the class at every opportunity. They must have known I was vulnerable as a first-time, full-time faculty member. And I felt like I was doing more crowd control than teaching. And my course evaluations at the end of the semester were not very good. It was quite uh, quite uh, striking and upsetting, as you can probably imagine. Um, so after that, I read all I could about the situation. I knew that it had a lot to do with this, my, my challenges in trying to control the class. And so the next, um, so I did a lot of reading, and the next semester, I implemented a new technique I learned about establishing a psychological contract on the very first day of class. And as a side note, I'm now studying psychological contracts in my research with consumers. But anyway, that's a different thing. But I'd be what? happy to share the technique and sorry, go what? ahead. What, what is a psychological contract? Okay, well, I, you know, if, if if we have a moment, I'll tell you the actual technique, okay, in summary, and I'm happy to provide anybody any more details if anybody wants, okay, uh, but it, it had a big impact on my future teaching of freshman courses, and so what it is, is the first day of class, um, you know, you start out with two questions, the first, before I even go through the syllabus, I start, I I, I, I go through this exercise for about 20 or 30 minutes with the students on the very first day of class. And uh, only for freshmen, okay? You don't need it for MBA students, obviously, or upperclassmen even. But, um, but I say to them, I, uh, I put up on the board, okay, or in PowerPoint or chat or whatever it is you're using, and I say, what makes a good teacher or a good professor? And so the students come down, you know, they're all excited, right? Oh, why? They're being, you know, asked uh, their opinion and come up with, Things like, you know, they're, they're prepared and uh, they, uh, you know, they're, they, they're empathetic and they come up with these lists of things that they think are brilliant teacher. And then I put a second column and I say, what makes a good student? And we go through the same thing. And lo and behold, we find there's an enormous, almost exclusive, entire overlap between the two columns. And so then they come to see that that um, you know to be if they I, I tell them my side my contract with you that I will do my very best to be the best teacher for you I can be, and I ask you to do the same, and uh, you know and then it, it, it has always worked and I stick to it and and uh, and and because we have this contract in upfront the students respond better to me 
But I also feel much more comfortable and confident in asking a student to leave the class if need be. So, yeah. Nice. Thank you. I hope that's helpful. <laughs> it is. It is. I'd like to, uh, should I say pivot? I'd like to steer the conversation to what happened a little over a year ago. So how did you feel back in March 2020 when on a dime we had to switch to remote teaching? And and I should actually, before I even ask you that question, I just want to point out, um, in case some of the people in this conversation are not aware, Colleen actually had piloted teaching on Zoom a year before, two years before. Yeah, about a year before. Mm -hmm. Yep. So I'm just going to stop there and, and turn it over to you. <laughs> yeah, well, that's exactly it, Fran. It was that, uh, that working with Noreen and, and, and Fran, I had, uh, I had piloted a Zoom class a year before. And I was thinking to myself, wow, you know, New York Tech is really advanced, which we were, right? We were one of the first institutions in the country to start teaching in Zoom. So we were way ahead of the game enormously. I'm, I'm sure all of our faculty members realize that they have people, you know, colleagues at other institutions, how lost our colleagues at other institutions were, whereas we were way ahead of the game as an institution. Um, so anyway, uh, so yeah, it, it really felt quite comfortable for me, actually, because I had already taught right, an entire course in Zoom. And uh, I've always loved technology. I, I, I come from the tech, tech industry, so uh, professionally and uh, was teaching online, you know, back in the 1990s. <laughs> so it, it was all good for me. I did, didn't, you know, not to say there aren't huge problems, okay, and huge challenges, but um, but I was comfortable with it, yeah. One of the things I remember was you switched to teaching on Zoom what would otherwise have been a class in the distance learning video conference in classrooms, yes. right? So yes. you went from having some students in the room with you and others on a screen far, far away to having everyone on Zoom. And I remember so clearly a conversation with you where you were talking about how much more equitable it was to have everyone, yourself included, in the same size box on the screen at about the yes. same distance. Yes, yes, exactly, Fran. We were actually talking about this in a faculty meeting today in the School of Management. You know, we're talking about course delivery modes and things like that. And we were actually talking about that. And I think most of my colleagues feel the same way that uh, Zoom is more equitable. Uh, it, you know, yeah, exactly. And uh, um, and we actually did a survey also in the School of Management of our uh, our graduating students. I believe it was or. Um, in any event, we have had about 70 or 80 students respond, so pretty decent sample size. And, um, and they strongly and significantly preferred Zoom over DL. So uh, we can definitely say, you know, I would feel very comfortable saying that Zoom is preferable. Now, we're all kind of tired of Zoom. <laughs> so, but, <laughs> but yes, definitely has, has some pros uh, to, to offer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So once you switched to that, what did you do differently than compared to when in the, you were in the classroom, right? What did you do differently to engage the students and keep them? Active? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, right, that does take a, a bit of getting used to, right? Um, so, you know, so first of all, you know, I guess I would say that there have been some things about Zoom teaching that actually have made teaching easier. So let me just start with that, okay, even though we're all 
tired of Zoom in a lot of ways, right? But, um, but examples of this are like having Zoom create randomized uh, breakout rooms. And um, that's so fantastic because in DL courses or even physical courses, right, trying to get students to like connect and meet for impromptu assignments in the classroom with somebody they don't know is really almost impossible, right? It's a lot of work in any event. And whereas on Zoom, it's a piece of cake, right? You just click the uh, uh, randomized breakout session button and off they go. So I find that doing that early in, in the semester, right at the beginning for several classes and doing it several times with several low stakes types of assignments or think, pair, and share types of things, um, it, it's a great way for students to get to know each other before they have to pair up you know, in group pro uh, major group projects with, with more implications for their grades. So that's one thing, uh, you know, one advantage to Zoom technology. Um, you know, the Zoom, keeping the video on, you know, is always, right, you know, we all encourage that. I don't mandate it, but I certainly encourage it. But it's an issue, of course. You know, we have students even from all over the world, and sometimes, you know, from uh, either it's 2 o'clock in the morning for them sometimes when they're in one of my classes, or they just don't have the bandwidth to do it. So that's an issue. Uh, but I, uh, other things I do, um, the breakout rooms are fantastic. I do make good use of the breakout rooms. Um, I also use uh, the, the discussion boards a lot, you know, to help students prepare in advance for classes. So as an example, we had Betty Hudson, uh, who is a strategic communications executive, has an enormous history and background uh, and career in communications. And she's on our New York Tech Women's Technology Council. And she came to my consumer behavior class last week and our MBA consumer behavior class. And so I, I asked the students to post marketing challenges for her, you know, to discuss uh, ahead of time in the discussion board. And I sent them to her. And so we had a, a fantastic interaction in class where the students were showing them some, you know, showing her some of the problems and she was kind of addressing some of the issues. So it was, uh, it was great. I do that kind of thing a lot with my students. Uh, uh, using black, uh, excuse me, Canvas now, uh, the discussion boards to help um, help them prepare ahead of time. Um, I also uh, I also use. I mean, I don't know how much you want to hear. I don't want to talk everybody's ear off. <laughs> um, I do have a couple of other. Yeah, okay, one more. All right. So uh, so I well, one of my favorite things to do. Uh, and everybody, I'm sure, has developed their own techniques, and I'm sure mine is probably very. <laughs> backwards, but it works. Um, I go in and out of editing mode in, in, in PowerPoint. So I add blank slides, you know, like every two or three slides, I'll add blank slides or a discussion question or something. And so that way, you know, as I go into editing mode so that I can write down the comments that they're making. So uh, it becomes really like a whiteboard and uh, that you know, works pretty well, actually, and the students seem to like it. And unfortunately, I have fantastic students. So that helps. That's terrific. So then we get to the summer. We survived the spring. Everyone takes a deep breath. And you find out that we're going to be remote in the fall. So there's a difference, right, between emergency remote teaching where we just and being a little more intentional about it. What did you change yeah. in the summer? Yeah, wow, that's such a great question. So I remember vividly being outside, watering my plants and listening to a podcast. 
about online teaching, right? We were all going through the same problem last summer and the same around the country and around the world, these enormous challenges. Um, so the biggest challenge I have had uh, um, is figuring out how to conduct valid learning assessments when in a remote learning environment. And it has been, we all know it, I, I suspect, right? And we were talking about this even today in, in our faculty meeting. A couple of professors mentioned, you know, this as an issue. It's a huge issue because our traditional assessments, you know, don't work because the students just look up the answers. Even if we use like a browser lockdown or something, they just take their phone and look up the answers. And um, and if students are cheating, we have big problems. You know, it's one thing to, to have it happen for a semester. But we can't go on, right, with this kind of thing as a on a permanent basis. It's just a huge problem. I've had students call me in frustration because we're penalizing the honest students who don't cheat if we make it easy to cheat. So I just have decided that I'm not going to have those kind of tests where students can cheat easily. So and I was listening to this podcast for that reason. And, and it was a podcast about how to, um, about authentic assessment. And it was absolutely fascinating. And so I have tried to implement some of those techniques in class. It's time consuming. Uh, you know, obviously, it's just a whole different way of assessing learning. But there's a lot to be said for it because the exams become a learning process rather than just an assessment. So that's an advantage, too. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, uh, I could give you a few, couple of examples if you would like. Would that be helpful? Yeah. Yes. Okay. So, um, so uh, for example, some um, uh, one of my courses last semester, I implemented interviews. <laughs> I interviewed each student, 25 students in the class. You know, I interviewed them and I had them show me. I gave them a problem that they had to do an SBSS. And I had them show me, share their screen and show me. So there was, it was impossible for them to cheat. <laughs> and, um, and, and that worked really well. You know, I gave it, I, all of the work that I was questioning them on was work that they had done for homework. So they should have known how to do it. So uh, it worked, uh, that worked well. Um, I also do things like this semester in my consumer behavior course. I designed, and, you know, in some of my other courses, I've written case studies, my own case studies. I've, uh, I've um, uh, I wrote a you know a a a a, a uh, I used some of the actually some of the the ideas for discussion questions from the textbook. Okay, I've taken some of those where they actually have to go off and find examples of you know problems that marketers have had or or challenges you know the you know things that consumers might do or the ways they might respond to advertisements. So um, I've gone I've had them go off as part of the exam and find examples. So and write about them and write about why these examples demonstrate what they're, uh, what, what these concepts are. And that is, you know, the reason I say I think it's worked pretty well is because I see a dispersion in the grades and they're not all getting A's. And um, so I think it's been working pretty well. How have the students responded? I think this is wonderful. I, I <sighs> am so happy listening to you. How did your students respond? Um, so obviously a big challenge is with a multiple choice exam, it's pretty black and white. Okay. You know, if a student gets a C or an F or whatever they get, right. It's pretty black and white why they got it. And it's 
kind of hard to argue, right? Uh, but these assessments are much more objective. So that's the biggest challenge I find is having to sometimes, you know, justify to the students, which they deserve, uh, why they got the grade they did. And, and it's more subjective. So they, I have no idea. My course evaluation may go down this semester. I don't know. <laughs> but, can, you know, hopefully, I, I'll let you know at the end of the semester. <laughs> please do. I'm going to circle back. Um, there's There's other things you can do as part of the assessment, like giving students rubrics up front to show them how they'll be graded um, yeah. or using transparent design to frame the assignment for them. So they understand the purpose as well as the task, right? You're doing this yeah, because this is something point. you're likely to do in your first year of employment. Yeah, yeah, right? something yeah to make absolutely. It yeah, yeah, absolutely. To help, yeah, right, help them understand why. That's a very good point. Yeah. As we move to a post-COVID world, or as we hope to move to a post-COVID world, do you think you'll keep any of these innovations? Which ones in particular? Oh, so, yeah. Um, yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, I think about that all the time, <laughs> about what is happening to our industry, uh, what will happen to our industry. Um, you know, everybody is struggling to address it right now. Um, you know, uh, Provost Gonzalez recommended a book uh, to uh, some some of us who were on the um, the task force for online and continuing education, the advisory committee. And uh, so, and and it's called Failure to Disrupt by Justin Reich at Harvard. And um, he documents decades of research that have shown that in spite of the huge promises of, of digital technologies, pedagogical improvements have been incremental, um, you know, not instantly transformative like, you know, many people had predicted. So um, it, it, they, he also shows that the students who benefit the most from online learning are those who are already the most educated. So I think that some of these things are going to, you know, are going to be huge, continue to be huge challenges for higher education. The only thing I, good thing I can say is that hopefully it means we still have jobs <laughs> for a long period of time <laughs> and it won't become too disruptive. But, you know, so, so in answer to your, you know, more, so that's a general thought, okay? In answer to your more specific question about uh, what will I keep, you know, I do think that, um, uh, you know, we were uh, one of the interesting things uh, before the pandemic. One of the in in uh, interesting trends was a move towards uh, the flipped classroom, and um, so that's something that I think was, you know, happening already. And I think in a lot of ways, through the pandemic, through digital learning, we can take advantage of that by, you know, recording snippets of lectures ahead of time or, you know, having students prepare on digital discussion boards and things like that ahead of time. So um, those are the kinds of things that I think, uh, you know, will probably stick around is those kind of, you know, flipped, uh, an accelerated move towards flipped learning. What about your authentic assessments? Oh, the authentic assessments. Oh my gosh, I have to think about that. Um, I have to think it's, about that. You know, probably educationally, some of them, yes, it's a much better way to do it. 
right? Yeah. Because, I mean, yeah. it's authentic yeah. because it's authentic to the workplace. Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's a it's a really important point, Fran. I have not thought about that, and I think, but I think I, I I'm sure I will keep some of them. I probably will also though keep some objective boring old school types of assessments just because I think it's it's good to have a balance you know that for those students who really do not believe that <laughs> that this was a fair grade you know they do uh they might believe it on a with a you know a more traditional uh, objective assessment <laughs> so uh, probably a mix probably a mix anyone have any questions would anybody like to jump into the conversation I'd just like to thank you guys. Uh, the, these kinds of intimate conversations where you learn what somebody specific does and, and Colleen and I teach the same thing. It, it's nice to hear what either an echo of what I do or something new that I can fold into my repertoire. So it's, it's while this was a very short period of time, it's a, a very useful one. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening, Ellie. <laughs> So I try to wrap up these conversations with recommendations. Is there a particular app or technology or tool that you think makes your teaching better or easier or improves student learning or streamlines preparation? Is there something um, you could recommend that people might not be familiar with? So, um, I, you know, I, I don't know how innovative this is. <laughs> But this is something that, uh, but yes, I can tell you about something that uh, that has made a difference, you know, I think in, to me in my teaching. So a few years ago uh, here at New York Tech, a student wrote in one of my course evaluations that they believed I favored students who I had known from previous classes. And, um, you know, I teach often, I have the same students in multiple classes, which I, of course, I always enjoy because I get to know them. Uh, but that, to me, was, you know, not a, not a, not a comfortable feeling. And, and it made me, you know, I was pretty unhappy to read that. And uh, I was stunned, really. <laughs> and we all like to believe that we'd never be biased in any of our assessments of students or that we're biased at all in our lives, right, in general. But I study consumer psychology, and my job is to study cognitive biases. <laughs> so I knew that it is possible that I am biased or was biased, even, you know, you know, even uh, it is possible, okay, that I was uh, biased, even though I didn't think so, okay. But also in marketing, we say that it doesn't matter what the marketer thinks. What matters is the consumer's perception of reality that influences their judgment. So it doesn't matter what I thought or if I was biased or not. What mattered was that the student thought that I was biased. So um, after that, I thought about it, okay, and I had decided to, I looked into anonymous grading in Blackboard at the time and now Canvas. So, uh, and I have, so now I have, since that time, I have implemented that in, in in as much as possible with every assignment I possibly can. So exams, you know, whatever they're submitting, everything that gets submitted, uh, can be submitted online, gets graded anonymously. So, uh, and that way, you know, I know when I'm grading that I'm not biased, okay? And 
the students know that I'm not biased. So they submit their work with no name on it, and the grades are not revealed to me or to the students until all of the grading is done, and then the grade gets matched up with the student. And so uh, that way, sorry, no, 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 that's it. Do you ever do peer grading? So in other other words, let them evaluate each other's work? Oh, uh, you know, that's a great idea, Um, Ellie. Is that Ellie asking? It Um, is. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I have not done that, but that would be a, a an excellent tool. And actually, that is something that has been on my list to kind of, uh, you know, try out one of these times. Yep. That's one of the things that I was suggested, I, I that someone suggested I implemented seemed to work quite well, because actually they're harder on each other than the, I am on them. <laughs> Great point, Ellie. Wonderful point. That's, that's a really good idea. Yep. Is there anything I should have asked you that I haven't? <laughs> um, I don't think so. I just, you know, want to say how, how grateful I am to all of the my fellow faculty members at New York Tech. I learned so much from all of you, okay? And, you know, some of these things that I've attended, you know, John Mizak, I've got to give him a call out because he's so amazing, right? Some of the tech, the way he uses technology in his courses, uh, you know, my colleagues in the School of Management, Deborah was using Zoom for teaching on a snow day, you know, before all of us. <laughs> And and uh, so we just have uh, we have a great group of faculty and and a fantastic center for teaching and learning. Um, and and I also want to give a call out to Amy Bravo because she participated in your workshop uh, at the Center of Teaching for Teaching and Learning. You know, a few years ago that I attended and I learned uh, I learned an enormous amount from that workshop and from Amy who was uh, was in my group and helping us all out quite a bit. Mm-hmm. So really, that's all. <laughs> Amy is pretty phenomenal. Yes, indeed. Um, I can't thank you enough for spending time with us today and sharing some of your practices. Um, totally I'm a privilege. Going to circle back to you and keep talking with you. I know. Um, and great. All of our our participants, thank you so much for joining us today. We've been speaking with Colleen Kirk. Associate Professor in Management and Marketing Studies in the School of Management as part of the Great Teaching Series. This conversation's been recorded and we will make it available on the Center for Teaching and Learning webpage, nyit.edu/ctm. If you'd like to be featured in the Great Teaching Series, please email the Center for Teaching and Learning at ctl at nyit.edu or better yet, please fill out the form at bit.ly slash great dash teaching. Thank you so much.